All right, guys, we are in Psalm 42 and 43 tonight. I know y'all got kids swimming in your laps, but I am going to try to ask you questions tonight. Uh, this is a really good psalm to, um, to learn on, um, learn about the flow of the text, uh, make some comparisons uh, within the psalm, see the progress. There's a couple of different places where the progress in the psalm, the spiritual progress is really amazing. And so he describes it with his words. So this is a fun one just to sit and look at and notice relationships from the first section to the second section, first section to the third section because it's really short. You can, show, you can see relationships between one verse and the next verse. You can see relationship between first verse and the last verse of the same section. So, again, this is a really good one to just sit and practice on. But I've told you this before. Um, it's easy to preach on things that you've experienced personally, the text, if that makes sense. But this is a lament and the writer, whoever he may be, most guys suggest it's David. We have no idea. The lament is so difficult. His experience is so difficult. I don't have anything in my life to relate. I've never reached the depth of sorrow that this particular writer is at. And so I'm preaching from a position that I don't normally, I'm not comfortable preaching, I'll just be honest with you. And a lot of these things, I don't know what he's talking about just because of the depth that he's at. Uh, I'll point it out as we go. It seems as though he's in captivity. Uh, but if he's in captivity, then David can't be the writer. The only way David could be the writer in Psalm 42 and 43 is if it's not captivity, but David's running from Saul. That would be the only point in David's life. But to me... I mean, if that's that perspective, then okay, this doesn't go as deep as I think in the lament. But the words are so deep in the lament. I just, to me, I just can't imagine this is David. But anyway, you'll see it as I read through it. Uh, 42 and 43 originally were together. And you'll see it when I read it because it always closes on the same refrain. Verse 5, um, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. That's repeated in verse 11. That's repeated in verse 5. Okay? So there is tremendous amount of structure here. Uh, the first section is a lament that moves us from verse 0, if you will, down to verse 4, and then you have the refrain in verse 5. The second lament, and again, there's progress in between the two laments, moves us from verse 6 all the way to verse 10. You have the refrain in verse 11. You see that? And then you have the third lament, starts in 43.1, goes down to verse 4. Then you have the repeating refrain in verse 5. So originally these were together. Uh, don't really know why they were at some point separated, uh, but they were but we'll consider them as the same experience, the same writer, talking about the same thing. And I don't think there's any danger in that. 
uh, there's just way too many connections going on between 42 and 43. Okay? So let me read it, and we'll pray and ask the Lord for help in understanding it. And then we'll get started walking through it. First verse, first zero, if you will, for the choir director of Maskeel of the sons of Korah. And that word literally means an instruction. Okay? As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. O my God, my soul is despair within me, is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command. Actually, it's in a present tense. The Lord commands his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to my God or, or I'll say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair on my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. Vindicate me, O God. Plead my case against an ungodly nation. O oh, deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. I want us to lay hold of the reality of what we have in our lap. You alone are the only God who speaks and you have spoken in tremendous ways to your people. And Father, through your sovereignty and your power and your divine will, you have determined that we would have a copy from the things that you have said to your people that is passed down from generation after generation after generation after generation. And Father, we praise you for that. 
And Lord, we understand at least the beginnings of that understanding of just the treasure that we have. And Father, I pray that we would never take it for granted. We, that we'd understand that within this book that you have written contains the words of life. And we would treasure it all from cover to cover, Father. And that you would grant us the grace that we might understand it. And that you would grant us the grace that we might walk in a way that honors it. That is a reflection of it. And that we would bring you glory as people who have been delivered from death to life, from the power of Satan to God, and we have been given a place among those who have been sanctified by faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus. Father, we don't know who wrote this. We don't even know the circumstances surrounding it. But it's better that way, and the reason I know it's better that way because that's the way that you give it to us. So, Father, help us through your Spirit to take my words and be found faithful to the text, useful to the body, and glorify you the entire way and help your words bear fruit in our lives. Lord, we praise you and we love you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. If you have a chance or if you want a link, I can send it to you in, um, off of uh, YouTube. Uh, Steve actually preaches through both of those, and he was, I, I usually brag on Plumer, but I had watched Steve go through this, and Steve, Steve doesn't, he didn't go psalm to psalm to psalm, he hit on a few psalms along the way, some of the highlight, or some of the grander, I guess, psalms, if you can actually say that, and he spends more time on 42 and 43 than he does any other psalm that I know of, it's absolutely tremendous. So after I watched him a couple of times, I read Plumer, and I was super disappointed in Plumer. Usually I'm not disappointed in Plumer. But you can tell that Steve has spent so much time in 42 and 43. Uh, when he finishes, you feel like he is so close to the original meaning that whoever wrote it wrote it yesterday. I mean, it just comes to you that way. So I'll be disappointed in how, I, how we go through this. I know by the end of it, but I do encourage you, if you want to do further study in 42 and 43, I can find Steve's link and send it to you. But anyway, he titles 42, Hope, obviously. That's the repeating refrain. And he entitles 43, Continued Hope. So it's about hope from beginning to end. But there are three distinct parts. And if you're taking notes, as I said, there are three laments that are brought together as one lament. You've got verses 1 through 4 as a lament. And that lament is answered by hope in verse 5. You've got 6 through 10 is the lament. It's answered by hope in verse 11. And then in 43, 1 through 4, you've got a lament that's answered with hope in verse 5. So you see the answer to our lament. It's always hope. And remember, this is biblical hope. It's different. Biblical hope is certainty. It's a matter of waiting. It's never the question of if. The question is always when, right? And so this is in regard to a biblical hope. So what I want to do, and I'll show you the progress as we go through, is just deal with each one of these sections individually, and then I'll show you some things as we go through. But you see, immediately begins in verse 1 and 2, describing a depth that you need to see right out, off, right out of the gate. When he begins, my soul, in verse 2, or verse 1, the second part of verse 1, and he begins verse 2 in the same way, my soul. So he's already driven us way down deeply just by using those words. This is not a circumstance in his life that is merely difficult. 
this is one that has shaken the foundation of who he is. But he knows where to go. We're not talking about an immature believer that's writing this. We're talking about a very mature believer. Yet even this mature believer makes tremendous progress as we move through this psalm. Because where does his soul want to go? He tells you, my soul pants for you, O God. So he knows where his answer lies. He knows where his comfort is. It's not in the escape of his circumstances. He begins right where he needs to end, and that is in the presence of God. In fact, he gives us three references. My soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And then he asks the question, when shall I come and appear before God? Now, there's a whole lot of questions in here. And Steve does a good job in talking about the importance of questions. But you've got to ask the right question. Because his enemy is about to ask a question, and it is a very dangerous question. If you notice in verse 3, where is your God? Now, that's a terrible question. And he doesn't dwell on that question. But the enemy keeps repeating that question to him. And so that should clue you into that's a very dangerous question. You never ask the question, where is God? You know, as a believer, where God is. And so he doesn't linger there. He doesn't answer the question. He just wants you to know in the disparity of his soul, his enemy keeps provoking him by mocking him, saying, oh, where is your God? Where is your God now? Think about Christ on the cross. If you are the Son of God, right? Yeah, he will save you. It's a very similar way of describing, or a very similar way of asking that same question. Now, the question that comes in verse 2 is a good question. When shall I come and appear before God? That's a question of expectation. When do I get to come into your presence? When do I get to spend time with you? Right? That's a good question. That's an okay question. But Steve says this, and it's very true. At some point in time, you've got to stop asking questions and you've got to start resting in promises. And as you study through this psalm, I want you to notice all the questions that are going through here. I think when, where, why. I don't think what is asked, but just a number of times. And like Steve reminds us, questions are fine. They're okay. But be very careful because you can't end there you end with resting on the promises. Now, so when you look at verse 1 through 5, you'll notice what tense we're in. Look at verse 4. These things I remember. Now, where is he if we were in a verb tense? Past, present, future. He's thinking about the past. So when we divide these psalms, if you want a, a subtitle for the first, I guess, five verses, the first section of this lament, faith is longing, L-O-N-G-I-N-G. Faith is longing. It's wanting to be in the presence of God, right? But he's, he's in the past. And there's something very dangerous about what he's doing in verse 4. What's so dangerous about that? Who do we know? Sarah's right. He's trying to lean on yesterday. Who do we know in the Old Testament leans on yesterday and horribly offends God? 
Think about the Egyptian or the Israelites coming out of Egypt. And think about how they offended God by reflecting on the past. What'd they do? They thought about Egypt. And what about Egypt? Oh, we used to have good food there. It used to be fantastic. It'd be easy. Yep, had it made in Egypt. We just sat around pots of meat all day. That's a unique way to describe slavery. Yeah. You know, which we know that's not what actually took place. But that's the dangers of reflecting on the past when we're in the midst of very difficult circumstances. You're going to wind up sinning. There is a way to remember things, and he's about to make a little progress and do it a little better. But be very careful because that's one of the first places you're going to go. It's all falling apart, however you want to say that. You're right in the middle of terrible circumstances and you immediately begin reflecting on when you were not in the midst of terrible circumstances. So you're already headed off into a very shaky direction that you need to be very careful in going in because you'll find yourself sinning against God. But nonetheless, I skipped over this just a little bit. His circumstances are terrible. Look at verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. It's, it's inescapable. And this is why I can't relate because I, maybe it's my short-term memory loss that I'm already suffering from in my 50s. I don't know. But there's very few things that bother me all day long and all night long. And I know some of you probably had some things that have bothered you all day long and all night long. But I can't think of anything yet. Maybe... My short term is working to my benefit right now. But as I studied through this psalm, I was like, I'm just not laying a hold of anything that has caused me to weep day and night, day and night, day and night. And it's simply not going away. And to compound that, your enemy is going, oh, where's your God? Where is he? I thought you were a Christian. Where, where is he? Is he not going to save you or deliver you from this? Mockingly as we go along. So again, he responds in, in a not so good way. These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and I lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving and multitude keeping festival. Now, when you read that, you probably do immediately think of David. He did leave a great many processions to the house of God. Right. But again, I, I can't think of a time where perhaps he was this low, but maybe he was. Now, what's so good about verse 5? Because he begins to ask some questions, and these are good questions. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Now, a literal translation is probably a little bit better. Steve translates it, Why are you cast down, my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? In other words, my soul has been set on edge. Filled with anxiety. So the writer is speaking to himself. And he begins to reason within himself. And he's saying, what are you doing? Why are you going here? Why is this eating your lunch? Because he answers his question, hope in God. He's preaching the gospel to himself, right? 
So he's saying, so why are you driven down so lowly? Why has your soul been set on edge? Here's your answer, soul. Hope in God. Now, he's going to do this three times. So you need to know how important this is. You really have to do this for yourself. You really have to sometimes minister to your own soul because you guys know a great deal, okay? But you have to begin to apply those things. And this is one of those times where you see a very mature believer in a terrible moment learning to apply the truths of Scripture. Why in the world are you driven down so low by these circumstances? What are you doing? Don't go there. We know better than to go here. And so he responds to himself, hope in God. He's literally doing, what is it in 2 Corinthians? He's taking his thoughts captive. If you want to put that into practice, this is what he's literally doing in this moment that his soul is in disparity. He's taking his thoughts captive. and He's going, you know what? I'm just not going here. This is no place for me. This is not where I need to be. Okay? In fact, he's kind of rebuking himself. It's a mild... Maybe a little more than mild. Maybe a little bit of a stiff rebuke to his own soul for being so filled with despair and so set on edge. So we see that hope is really more than an attitude. He's being very active in recovering his soul to God. Hope is becoming an action. In other words, set your hope on God. Right. Now, as we move into the second one, again, we've made progress. Well, you can pick up on the progress just from the very first word. Oh, my God, my soul is in despair within me. Now, you're going to find that these are in the present tense. We moved out of the past tense. We found ourselves in the present tense. And faith has gone from longing for God to where faith is going to be reviving. In other words, as you move into verse 6, faith is beginning to build. Sarah said this was a song. I wonder if they did this right because the music should be building right here. And it should build until it reaches, the, what is it called, the crescendo or whatever. Yeah, so, I mean, you can feel it as you walk through this psalm. And this is the beautiful thing about psalms. Y'all may think that I'm terrified of emotions and totally unemotional. But you come to the psalms, you can't help but see the emotions. And this is deeply emotional. And it could be easily expressed in the music. But in verse 6, how have we made progress? You tell me. I'll give you another clue. Look at the end of verse 8. A prayer to the God of my life. So when we reflect on verses 1 and 2, you read those real quick in your mind. And you come down and you read the first half of verse 6. Oh my God, my soul is in despair. Read the last part of verse 8. A prayer to the God of my life. Where's the progress? goes from the God to my God. That's progress. In other words, he's just asking for the presence of God in the first section of the psalm or in the first part of the psalm, the first lament. 
And now all of a sudden you find all these personal pronouns. Look at this. Oh, my God. That's in comparison to, oh, God, in verse one, right? My soul thirsts for God. But look, he goes further for the living God. But look down in verse eight, a prayer to the God of my life. See, now he's, he's recognized or reminded himself, I guess, of his personal relationship with God. God is not just the God or a God, as terrible as that would be. No, this is my God. In other words, his faith is building. He knows who he's speaking to. He has a relationship with this God that he's calling out to, and he knows him as my God. Okay? But there's even more progress. Look back up at 42.6. Oh, my God, my soul is in despair within me. In other words, the circumstances hadn't changed, but we're beginning to turn toward God and away from our circumstances. Therefore, I remember you. All right, so let's do a little more practice here. We see verse 4, 42.4. He was reflecting on some things in the past. You get down to verse 6. And he's matured. How has he matured from verse 4 to verse 6? Yeah. He's not just remembering himself leading the procession going up to church. Who does he remember in verse 6? I remember you, God. Now, I told you, or I warned you rather. See what he says there? Therefore, I remember you. He's not remembering past things. He's remembering God in the past, and that's entirely differently. Because when you remember the past, you're reflecting on yourself. But he's left that behind. That's not a safe place to be. You'll make goofy comments like, oh, remember we used to sit around by pots of meat and just eat all day. It was great. No. Now I've left that. That's a bit childish. Now I'm remembering God. That's always a safe place to be. So he wants to reflect on the faithfulness of God in the past. And I strongly encourage you, that's a good thing to do. Because it's going to remind you that God has always been faithful. There's never a time when he has not been faithful. So even though I find my soul at the lowest point that I can ever think of, it not it's not going to change who God is. He will be faithful. It does not matter. If I do wet my pillow by night and I wet a box of Kleenexes by day, it does not change the character of God. God is going to be faithful. Therefore, faith builds, the music builds, and I remember God. Okay? Now, he gives us some places which is interesting and don't know anything about this, really, from the land of the Jordan, the peaks Ramon, from Mount Mazar. They're, they're not significant that I know of. At least I didn't read anybody that had any kind of significance to it. But more than likely, okay, here's the tack. If he has been taken off into captivity, these may be some of the places that he experienced in his wanderings as he was being led away. And no matter where he found himself in captivity, he could remember God because God was right there with him. I like that explanation better than anything allegorical or goofy. Okay? So he said, Lord, it really doesn't matter. Everywhere I've been, I can remember you. I can remember you when I was a child, if we want to take this illustration. I can remember you when I was 
you know, high school student. Lord, I, I remember you being there when I was in college. Lord, I remember you being there when I was single. Lord, I remember you being there when I was married. Lord, I remember you being there when I had kids. And on and on and on and it goes. So maybe that's what's taking place there. Lord, no matter where I found myself as I was being led out or whether I grew up as a boy, as a shepherd on this mountain or that mountain, it does not matter. Everywhere I've ever been, I can remember you because you're always there. Okay. So we made a lot of progress. We've turned away from ourselves. We've turned toward God. We've reminded ourselves that He is not just the living God. No, He is the God of my life. Verse 7, though, is unique. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. By the way, verse 7, who does that sound like in the Old Testament? Jonah. I started to say one of your sons, Jeremy. It really sounds like Jonah when he's sinking down. So he's describing... Well, perhaps in a way that I would best understand it, I'm getting hammered out here, right? My circumstances are bad, and I am continually getting hammered. The waves are literally breaking on top of my head, sort of thing. But there is a word in here, in verse 7, that gives us such tremendous comfort. What is the word? Your. You'll see that. Now, all of a sudden, I'm OK, because all the waterfalls, all the breakers, all the waves that have rolled over me have rolled over me by the sovereign hand of God. They all belong to the Lord. And all of a sudden, they're not so bad anymore. Because I know who is in control. God is sovereign over my circumstances. I mean, we've made a whole lot of progress from the first part of the lament to the second part of the lament. And ultimately, you've got to come to that realization in the midst of your circumstances. Really, no matter how bad they are, ultimately, God has it well in hand, right? What do we say? He's still on the throne. I think we used to sing a song like that, right? I'm, don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. Hannah was like, no, no. <laughs> But you, you have to get yourself there. This is how we apply some of this theology. You have to get yourself there and remind yourself that God is sovereign. He hasn't lost a grip. He hasn't untied the knot. He's still, still carefully in control of all of our circumstances. So even though it's breakers and waves and all this stuff crashing against my life, they all, each one of them, belong to the Lord. Now, because... He's reached this point where he's kind of resting in the sovereignty of God. Then you see he, he's aware of the ministry of God that's coming into his life. The Lord will command, don't, I don't, yeah, don't do that. In the Hebrew, it's in a present tense. It's arguable, but you definitely want to lean that way because it fits better. So the Lord commands... His loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in night. So the Lord is commanding his loving kindness, which is his chesed or chesed. It's covenantal love. And when is he commanding it toward us? Every word's meaningful. Day and night. 
You see, I would suggest because of his maturity, he's realized some things. It's okay. I may cry day and night, but God's ministry is being poured out on my life day and night. There never is a time that I am away from the loving kindness of God. He has commanded it. And it is flowing into my life. And through that loving kindness, right? It's coming to me day and night. God has given me a couple of things. First thing, He's given me a song in my heart. He doesn't expound on that, so I'm not going to expound on that. But God's given him a song. Not only has God given him a song, but God has given him a prayer. A prayer to the God of my life, right? Again, notice, he's no longer the living God of verse 2, but now he's the God of my life. And so we do have an explanation, or we do have... Uh, exposition, if you will, of the prayer. It, it comes to us in 49. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? So in other words, he comes back to the circumstance that he's in which is absolutely nothing wrong with that. But you'll notice the mocking that still takes place. Where is your God? And as soon as he comes to that, he comes back to verse 11 and he starts talking to himself again because that's not where he wants to be. You know, like it or not, this is what happens in all of our lives when we go through difficult things. It's like a roller coaster. Is it not? You know, you get things fixed in the refrain. We're about to get things fixed and you're, you're, you're moving right along. You're calling out to him as, a, as your personal God. You're reflecting on, you know, I, I just can't think of a time where God's ever been unfaithful to me. And you're just climbing that hill on that roller coaster. And you're going higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. And then all of a sudden you turn your eyes away from God, you set them back on your circumstances and right down the hill you go again. Just as hard and fast as you can go. But he catches himself. What are you doing? Why are you going here again? And so he preaches himself to himself again. Why are you in despair on my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. In other words, as soon as the despair rises, he counters that with hope. I'm not staying here. And that's something that you and I have to learn to do. And we all know this. There's a place that you get emotionally, spiritually, that's not healthy to be. And that's the place where the enemy can do the most damage in our life. So as soon as we feel despair rising up in our hearts is the very moment that that needs to be countered with hope as you preach the gospel to yourself, okay? By the way, countenance is literally face. You are the lifter of my face. You ever do that when you're a kid? When, you ever do that to your children? When they get down about something? When they do something they know they shouldn't have done, they're just absolutely broken about it and you just reach down and you grab that little chin and you lift that little chin up? Dry those tears off. That's what this is. He said, God, you are the lifter of my face. You just grab my chin and you just lift it up. Okay? 
the help, uh, and again, it's still personal, the help of my countenance and my God. All right, we've got a lot more progress to make as we roll into this last section. The problem is revisited again, where he says, Vindicate me, O God. Plead my case against an ungodly nation. Deliver me from the deceitful and the unjust. Now, let me leave this psalm for just a second. Keep a finger there. I'm going to put a bookmark there myself. And I want you to run to Romans 1. And the reason I'm doing this is because we're in Romans. So if you can be in verse 1 and you can turn back real quickly and look at Psalms 43, you've got three words that come in a particular order that's very important because it is forever in this order. And I didn't catch this. Steve pointed this out. And again, since we're in Romans, I thought I would point it out to you. But this is forever the order. Ungodly, deceitful, unjust. And that comes to us in verse 1. Plead my case against an ungodly nation. Deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. That is a particular order. That is a theological order that always plays out time and time again. And we see it played out in Romans 1. So go back with me in Romans 1. And let me start in verse 20, right? For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they came futile in their speculations. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals. Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their heart. So the first thing that you see in Romans 1 that takes place in the depravity of man is this ungodliness, this denial of God. Okay. Now, if you're going to not deny God, the thing that's going to leave second is truth. Because God himself is the source of all truth. And if you turn your back on God, then you leave truth at the door. And remember in Psalms, we go from ungodly to deceitful. So if we don't have truth, the flip side of that is lies and deceit. So watch what happens in the Psalms. Uh, verse 25, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. Right? So here's the, here's the flow of things. We deny God. We turn our back on the only source of truth. So we no longer have truth within our context of our lives. So now we're filled with deceit. Right? And if we're filled with deceit and lies, the last, the, the, the last part of that process is we become unjust in all of our relationships. So notice what happens to this. 28, and just so that it did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are, un, which are not proper. 
being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, malice, gossip, slanderers, and on and on and on and on it goes. That's forever the path. And you need to keep that path in mind. And I'm still chewing on that one myself. But that's the path we go as a country. That's the path that we can go as a people. But that path will forever be the same. The moment that you turn away from God, you start a process. And the next step of that process is you're filled with lies. Because you have no relationship with truth. And the moment that you're filled with lies is the moment that all of your relationships break down and you're filled with division and strife because you live by deceit and you don't treat people justly. Okay? So he describes this for us, which again helps us with the book of Romans just a little bit. But these are the sort of people that have taken a hold of our psalmist's life. He recognizes the theological order, but we get to see it in the text as well. So go back to Psalms 43. Sorry, had to leave that for just a second. Let me bring you back to the psalm. Vindicate me, O God. Plead my case against an ungodly nation. Deliver me from the deceitful and the unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. We're still holding on to that personal pronoun. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Okay. Something's different here. Because we're not going down so low. And look what happens in verse 3. Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Now, if there is one verse that I would tell you to hold on to in 42 and 43 that is the centerpiece verse, I would have to put it right here. Because what is he wanting to take place in his life? What is he asking to be led by? Truth. That's it. So in the face of difficulty, this is the only thing that needs to be making my decisions and guiding me. Because if I get away from this, I'm going to wind up making a fool out of myself. Now, there's a couple of you, I won't call you by name, but I know that you have walked through some extraordinarily difficult things in your life. And I watched you as you turned your life toward truth in order to make your decisions and be led. You have to do that if you want to come out the other side glorifying God. Because when we get in difficulties, what do we usually do? We usually get in this self-protective mode and we turn away from light and truth and we turn into ourselves and we begin to make our own decisions for ourselves because we're trying to protect me, myself, and I, right? Now, if you do that, you're going to make a fool out of yourself and you're not going to glorify God. The only way, the critical way to be led in difficulty is by the truth of God's Word. And that takes discipline. And that's why I tell you, these are the words of a very mature Christian. So we can literally just photocopy this into our life and realize the next time I find my soul going over the edge on the roller coaster, I go to Psalm 42 and 43 and go, oh yeah, I remember what I'm supposed to do. Grab yourself right here. Ask yourself, what in the world are you doing? 
Why are you getting so low, O my soul? Hope in God. Right? That's what you do. But then his prayer is absolutely remarkable. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Now watch where he wants to be led. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Let me ask you something. Do you see any progress in 43, 3, verse, 3, well, 43 verses 3 to 4? You see the progress in that? And it's intentional. You see, he's moving from the hill. First he says, move me to the hill. Then he's saying, oh, i got to get closer. The dwelling place. He's at the dwelling place. And he's like, oh, i got to get closer. The altar. And he stands at the altar and he's like, oh, i got to get closer to God. So it's intentional progress so that we can see what he's doing. He knows the only place that he's going to be comforted is in the arms of God, if you will. And so that's exactly where he wants to go. So in the face of his difficulties, like lead me in light and in your truth in order that I might get to you. And what does he, th what does he do when he gets to God? Upon the lyre, I shall praise you, O God, my God. Let me get to you and I'll worship you. That's all I need. And that's the thing that we've got to realize in the face of our difficulties as well. Let me just get to you personally and I will fall down and worship and I'll be fine. Now, I do want you to uh, see this progress just a little bit too. Look at verse 2, 42.2. We've got the phrase, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. You see that? This, this to me is one of the most significant uh, paths of progress that he takes. So my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Look down at verse 8, the last part of verse 8. He's not just a living God, but he's praying to the God of my life. And then you get over in verse 4 of Psalm 43. And he's not just the God of my life. He is the God of my exceeding joy. Now that is where you need to wind up. That's where you need to be. He's not just the God of my life. He is the God of my exceeding joy. And if I could just come into his presence, I would be filled with joy, the writer says. Okay. So he breaks out his banjo and he starts worshiping the Lord right in his presence. Okay. So now we weren't brought so low. We didn't hear the mockers say in this last section of this lament, where is your God? Because he caught himself even before there. And he immediately turned to the truth of God to be led by him. He immediately seeks the presence of God because he knows that in there he will find his exceeding joy. He immediately turns to worship. And then verse 5, I hear it asked a different way, and so I'd have to say the music needs to change here because we're not so low. 
but yet he still knows where he's been. And so he asks the question, why are you in despair on my soul? Tell me I've forgotten, right? Why are you disturbed within me? It seems like the reason has left my mind. I will hope in God and notice the future tense for I shall again praise him. He is the help of my countenance and my God. So again, even if you ask the questions and even if you take the journey, eventually you've got to rest in your theology. You've got to rest in the person of God. And that's where he is driving us toward. So he appeals to um, God in the first part of every one of these laments. But at the end of every single one of these laments, he appeals to himself. And he's like, what are you doing? Why are you here? You know what you're supposed to do. Hope in God. Um, Steve, a couple of things that Steve said, and I'll, I'll close with these thoughts, or we'll turn it off and ask questions if you got them. But trials are necessary to bring us into a deeper understanding of who He is and a fellowship with Him. They're necessary. If you don't go through difficulties and trials, you don't learn these things. You'll be like me talking about things that you really don't understand. But if you go through the difficulties and trials, you learn things. You learn how to be faithful in the midst of some very difficult things. And that's exactly what we want to do. Because in Psalm 42 and 43, faith is a verb. It's not a noun. John would love this. You know, if you ask John, what's your favorite psalm? John's going, oh, Psalm 42, 43. Faith is very active. It's not just a noun. It's not just a thing sitting there. No, faith is moving. Faith is growing. Faith is bringing him to the place that he needs to be. So it's genuine faith, right? See this in Job. You see this in Hebrews. It's a very active faith. But to know whether or not your faith is a verb, you got to go through trials. And you got to go through difficulties. Or your faith doesn't have to be active. It can be a noun and sit on a shelf all day. But that's not where any of us want to be, right? This is what God does to His people. Um, there's a number of places we could go to prove that. Hebrews 12 is one of those things. This is what He does to His children. Because He wants us to mature and He wants us to grow. And this is the means and the methods that He has chosen to do. But you, you get something like Psalm 42 and 43 and you spend time reflecting on it. You know how to walk into those things. You don't walk into those things unprepared. Because we have it laid out before us, the path that we need to take. So in the first one, faith is longing, Steve says. In the second lament, faith is building or reviving and then the third one, finally, faith is responding. The last one, faith is responding. Faith is trusting in God. That's his last word. I will hope in God. And it's not even over yet. He doesn't see the other side of this thing. So the music's got to kind of end weird, Hillary, because we don't get to the other side of it. But spiritually, he gets to exactly the place that he needs to be. And he's good.